Challenge the Chairman exclusively on Tory Radio. www.toryradio.com. Once again, I'm in Conservative campaign headquarters with Francis Maud, who's kindly agreed to take part in our regular Challenge the Chairman slot. I think we've now had probably as many sequels as we've had the Rocky movies. As always, Francis, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Pleasure. For those who haven't listened to Challenge the Chairman before, or why not? But if you haven't, listeners of Tory Radio and readers of the Conservative Home website submit questions, which I then put to Francis. So, without further ado, let's kick off with the first question. The issue of party funding, or indeed lack of funds for parties, has been in the news recently. Recent figures published seem to indicate that the Conservatives owe around about £35 million, Labour £23 million, and the Lib Dems just over £1 million. Are political parties facing a real problem here? Yes, I think they are. Um, it has, hasn't been easy to raise money for political parties recently. It's much more transparent than it used to be. Um, we made no secret that we... Um, raise a lot of the money to fight the last election by way of loans. Mm. And we've said that that was needed um, in order to smooth out the cash flow. I mean, obviously, you have a huge cash flow requirement uh, on the way out, as it were, around election times. Um, our figure of debt looks worse than Labour's, mm. but actually is much better. We uh, borrowed uh, nearly £16 million, um, of this earlier this year in order to buy the freehold of um, Smith Square and the building at the back, which is the same freehold. And that was a, actually a, a very worthwhile deal because it's sort of bringing the two things together has increased the value of Smith Square considerably. So I don't regret that at all. Now we've got a valuable asset, freehold asset now, which um, secures that loan. Labour's problem is much more intense because they don't have a property behind that. They don't have a corresponding asset. Um, and they've got a lot of very irritated um, do- uh, lenders who want their money back, um, who are clearly thought they were getting something um, for their loan, aren't going to get it now, and they want the money back, and Labour, I think, is going to have a problem. What it's done is intensify the dependence of the Labour Party on union funding. And we've just seen that their last quarter of donations, 90% of their income was from trade unions. So Tony Blair's great wheeze that new Labour was not going to be dependent on the unions so is looking a bit... Mm-hmm. Could part of the issue of finance also be down to membership numbers? A uh, chap called, or could, could be a chap S, voice from the South West, mm. asks, is it true membership numbers have actually fallen since David Cameron became leader? Uh, with uh, Gawain asking, how much has membership fallen since you became chairman of the party and how, how could uh, you explain the fall in numbers? Well, the short point is that it's very hard to know what our membership numbers are because uh, our systems are frankly inadequate, um, have been for years. That's why we've invested this large amount of money um, in the last, um, over the last 12 months in building the new Merlin um, system, which will give us real-time information, the whole of the electoral register on it, all the canvassing information, historic pledge data information, plus our membership, and that will be held centrally but accessible locally. So for the first time ever, we will have some kind of serious handle um, as it's rolled out in the early part of the year, on what our membership is. But, in again, no secret that uh, political parties' membership has been falling for, for years. Mm. Uh, we had a big boost uh, when David became leader. We've got something in the region of 25,000 new members. Um, I hope um, uh, we can continue to build it. Uh, we haven't, I think, given the emphasis to membership growth that we should have done. Um, 
uh, in recent years, and I want to see it grow enormously. But I also want to see us being much better and more systematic about building the network of non-member activists, if you like, people who will uh, do stuff for us, don't necessarily want to sign up and wear the T-shirt, but who will commit, for example, to deliver 50 leaflets four times a year. You know, part of a delivery network is a crucial part of our campaigning capability. So I think we need to build up all of that and give much more emphasis on it. And, and we are, I think, no, no secret, we are um, recruit, seeking to recruit um, uh, a membership manager centrally who will be responsibility for driving our membership recruitment. But, I mean, as always, most of our membership recruitment will get done as it always has got done, not by the centre, uh, but by um, the associations um, in, in the um, constituencies. On, on, back on the subject of funding, do you, do you think parties are going to be faced out, forced down the route of state funding for, 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 them, for themselves? A new website this, this week has been launched by the former Tory MP, Philip Oppenheim, arguing against the case for, for state funding. I wondered whether the party and whether you had a view on that. Yeah, I do have a view. Um, I, I don't particularly want us to end up with more state funding. Hmm. Uh, I would rather we revive, we broadened our uh, donor base um, and increased our membership and, and uh, increased our income that way. Um, but I think there is a general desire to see our uh, dependence, parties' dependence on very large donations diminished. That's why we've suggested a cap of £50,000 on individual and corporate and trade union donations. Mm. We're not going to agree to that unless it applies equally stringently to trade unions as it would to, to individuals. Um, but you know, I, I, I'm actually reasonably confident that if that cap was in existence, we'd still be able to maintain our income because I think you would then have such a case for broadening it. Yeah. Um, uh, you would no longer people would no longer have the sort of the alibi of saying, "Oh well, the Tories get all their money from a few rich people." Um, so in America, when Congress put through a cap on donations to the federal parties of $25,000 each um, a year, the Republicans' federal income, um, income to the party federally as it were, uh, remained about the same level because they just broadened the donor base. They used the cap to broaden the donor base and, and, and I think we could probably do the same. Um, I think if, if this kind of approach comes in of a cap on donations, I suspect we would end up with more state funding, not particularly because we've pressed for it, but because yeah. Labour would um, demand it as yeah. a, a payoff for yeah. giving uh, up union funding. Yeah. HF asks, when will the party's parliamentary by-election organisation be as good or better than the Lib Dems, and who is the person responsible for, for the party's parliamentary by-election success? Well, when will it be as good? Um, well, we're making some progress. Um, Grant Shapps is vice chairman, who has responsibility for this area. Um, David McIntosh is head of the uh, manager, effectively, of the by-election team, dedicated by-election team we've put in place, which um, is not just there for parliamentary by-elections, it's also there for, for council by-elections, and they're involved in a great many um, of these. Um, we're also, at the same time, uh, developing the voluntary task force, volunteer task force, which I've always thought of as our territorial army, people who will commit you know, up to a week or two weeks a year to by-elections and who will build up sort of 
it will be effectively a cadre of people who not only are campaigners but who can take leadership roles in a, in a campaign. Um, and that's very exciting. It's gone really well. Paul Marland, who went off the board earlier this year, has been, as it were, the recruiting sergeant for it. And he's done a great job. We've just hit 200, actually, 200 um, people signed up. Okay. Room for more, so anyone who's uh, interested, come along and join up. Um, and, But I think, actually, I'll make a, a serious point here, which my um, colleague Eric Pickles often makes. We are much less good as a party at... Uh, when there's a by-election, everybody dropping what they're doing and going to it. Now, because we've set up a dedicated by-election team here, I hope we're going to avoid the situation we've had in the past, which is as soon as there's a parliamentary by-election, huge swathes of the professionals in the party have to give up what they're doing and go and work on that. That's, where, that's one of these things about the short-term being the enemy of the medium and long-term, because we actually we, they've all got really serious jobs to do and I, I don't want to be in a position where uh, half the party grinds to a halt. It's different for the Lib Dems because by-elections are a much bigger part of what they're about. They get so much momentum out of by-elections. Um, and they really matter to us, but they're not sort of... We, you know, we are a national party that's got a long-term task to, to pursue. But I think we are much less good at our activists um, getting stuck into this. And in a way, that sort of almost the sense of that is in this question. You know, it's almost saying, why are you in the centre not doing better, better at by-elections? The Lib Dems don't do better in by-elections because somebody sits in Cowley Street yeah. pulling the strings. It's because as soon as there's a by-election, there are camper vans and caravans and, you know, B&Bs, you know, a huge flood of Lib Dem activists descend on that by-election from all over the country and they stay there until it's done. Until we get that same hunger hmm. and that same sense that actually that is an incredibly important thing to happen, it's not going to be done by Grant. Grant and David Mankintosh aren't going to transform it. It's actually about quantity and quality of work on the ground that makes the difference. Do you think it needs to, to be almost put into the genetics of, of our membership, yeah. that they need to do this, that they've never had to do they never understood that that's what needs to be done at, at by-elections? Well, I mean, it used to be the case, actually. I remember in the 1970s when we were last in opposition, when we did fantastically well in by-elections, and when I remember you know, us winning Ashfield, uh, Workington, Walsall, Stetchford, you know, by, um, deeply solidly held Labour seats, which we won. And it did have that thing that you know, people descended on it from all over the country to, to help and to make it work. A subject that, that, that always crops up in, in these sessions is uh, candidate selection. Bernard Jenkins now been replaced as the person overseeing the A-list. What changes, if any, are we likely to see now that John Maples is in place? Are there going to be any imminent top-ups and new tranches of seats being advertised? And Derek asked specifically if any changes will be made to the candidate selection process as a result of all the feedback you've had from the consultation process that you and Don Porter initiated. Well, Don is uh, pulling together the um, feedback, and it's been incredibly useful. Um, and you know, the one thing that comes out of it, from what I've seen so far, is that there is an absolute um, accord with our aim, which is of increasing dramatically the number of women candidates uh, and the number of uh, uh, black and minority ethnic candidates. And that's, that's good. So, I mean, we're only talking really about ways and means. We're not talking about the fundamental goal here. Um, and, you know, there is a view from parts of the party that... 
um, people say, well, you know, we agree with the end, but uh, why can't you just let it happen naturally? Well, we've been waiting for it to happen naturally. It hasn't. But I would just say this about the selection process. Um, we will... It is, it is completely possible for every single selection, candidate selected from now on, to be a white male. There's absolutely nothing I can do with these rules to stop that happening. And the fact that we are now beginning to see significantly larger numbers of women selected, which is for the target seats and Tory held seats selected since the beginning of September, it's now running at nearly 40%, which is a big increase on where we have been. It needs to be sustained and so, and, and I, I, I hope increased. But it is a big that's increase. That's actually because uh, members of the Conservative Party in the constituencies have looked at the candidates available and they've, in every case, virtually every case, they've had the option of choosing a white man. And yet in four out of ten cases, broadly, they've selected um, a woman. Um, and that's a big change. And that's coming from within the Conservative Party. That's not imposed by David Cameron or me or Bernard or John Maples. That's what the Conservative Party members are doing. And it needs to be sustained. Otherwise, we will look like we've failed to recognise the change there is in Britain, which is part of what's been holding us back in the past. But I'm very proud of what the party's been doing on this. And, you know, I'm sure there will be um, refinements to the process. Um, but you know, I'm, I think we've made a lot of progress. What one criticism of, or perceived criticism of, of the A-list, uh, has been the small number of people applying for certain seats, uh, and possibly the seats more outside of the, the London region. Have any A-listers been removed for not applying for enough seats? No, I don't think they have. But this is something definitely on. Um, the m minds of uh, John Maples and, and Shireen Ritchie um, that you know we do expect people. There are some people who've got perfectly good reasons for not doing it, and that's that's um, understandable. And there are also some others who said, um, "I'm not applying for seats at the moment. I don't want to. Therefore, I'm, please take me off the A list." And that's fine too. But I think uh, they'll be looking at the next top up, which is going to happen. I think this side of Christmas, the plan is. Uh, I'm sure my colleagues are going to be looking very carefully at it, and, and um, I'd be surprised if everybody survives. You, you, you mentioned the, the success of the A-list. We recently saw the selection of Priti Patel in the notionally safe seat of Whittam, who beat off not only a sitting MP but an MEP in the process and, and, and a quite a popular local candidate. Is that a sign of the A-list working in practice? Yes, I think so. Um, I think, actually, one of the things that is also coming out from Don's uh, consultation process um, on the candidate issue, is he, he's been asking associations what they thought of the priority list issue before they did their selection compared with afterwards. And, you know, to be perfectly upfront, there was a lot of negativity beforehand, but associations who've been through the process, by and large, not universally, think it's been bloody good, actually, and are really happy with the selection of candidates they saw, and think it's been, been high quality. Um, so, you know, I think um, uh, Pritty is brilliant. She's a great candidate. She's going to be an outstanding MP. I think it's yet another first for the Conservative Party, but we're in a place where um, there's the prospect of the first woman Asian MP is going to be Conservative. Um, and that's fantastic. And she's done brilliantly. And she'll uh, do, do very well as the candidate there. So, yeah, is it working? I think it broadly is. not perfect. 
and, and I would hate us to be in a position where we have to have a system like this forever because I think as soon as you see um, the, 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 the nature of selections uh, changing so that we get a much more balanced uh, selection that's been the case in the past I think the sooner you can see us moving away from it Do, do you think then that, that, that if, if people see that if you're female you can get selected if you're Asian you'll get, you can get selected we'll have more applicants from those yeah. from, from those groups and therefore as you say you won't need the A-list because you'll get more applicants to choose from that, that, that fit those criteria Yes, I think there is some of that I mean we're still, I have to say, of applicants to be Conservative MPs, the numbers of which have risen exponentially because, you know, we're doing well and it looks like a, a good place to, to be. So the numbers have increased enormously. Um, the proportions haven't changed dramatically. There are some more women um, applying um, and some more BME candidates applying. But, but it isn't uh, changing dramatically. Um, but the quantity of women and BME candidates applying to be um, candidates has certainly increased. And, and I think there is also a real sense among them that uh, whereas a year, two years ago, they might have said, actually, I think the odds are stacked against me, they're now saying, I think I have got a decent shout at this. Very Concerned asks, why is it that the London Borough election saw only a 2% increase in the Conservative vote? We are nowhere in the forthcoming Scottish and Welsh Parliamentary Assembly elections. We've gone nowhere except backwards in by-elections and we won't even have a candidate as threatening to Livingston as the last couple of times in the London mayoral election. Well, I know, um, and I'm meant to be the gloomy one. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I mean, talk about the glass half empty. I mean, this is someone who's not seeing any water in the glass at all. Let's just be clear about this. Um, we have been ahead in the polls, and I don't place huge dependence on the polls, but I do know that being ahead is better than being behind. We've been ahead in the polls for a longer period than at any time since 1987. Um, it may be coincidence, may just be an accident, but it isn't just about Labour coming down, it's about us having significantly increased our vote share. You know, We hit 40% in the um, the uh, elections last May, which is great. I haven't been there before for a long time. Um, London borough elections, particularly mentioned here, well, you know, we blew the lights out in the London borough elections. Okay, some of that was to do with Labour's vote share uh, falling, but, you know, we won boroughs like Ealing that weren't even on our target list. We did bloody well, and that was about a ton of really good candidates, including a huge number of really vigorous younger candidates going out, fighting hard, campaigning vigorously in their communities with loads of, of, of particularly of younger activists and did really well. Um, and, you know, this assertion we're nowhere in the forthcoming Scottish and Welsh elections is just rubbish. Um, we are making progress. We're not making as much progress. And there's evidence that uh, we would not do as well in the devolved elections as we would in the general election in Scotland and Wales um, and that's partly because there is still this perception that we are, we're against it all we hate the assembly, we hate the parliament we don't, we're committed to making them work um, uh, and we need to campaign in that way and this stuff about a candidate uh, in the London mayoral election whoever wrote this hasn't got a clue who's interested in uh, being our candidate for the London mayoralty. Actually, a lot of really serious people are interested in it, I'm delighted to say. Uh, and we'll have a, um, an open primary, um, which will enable Londoners to select um, a candidate. So, you know, I mean, 
I think whoever wrote this needs to go and lie down in a darkened room for a bit and wake up and feel a bit more cheerful about life. Moving away from London, uh, moving uh, up north, I I was going to try and do this in a a Geordie accent, but I thought I'd better not. Geordie asks, do you believe that the party's current tone resonates with Northerners and Scots, and are you happy with the party's progress in this end of the country? No, I'm not. And do I think that it resonates? Um, Not sufficiently. Um, But I think, I mean, I've I've been thinking a lot about this because it is incredibly important for us. Um, And... um, we became as in our bad years we sort of retreated more and more as a party into our southeastern redoubt um, that's where our strength was um, and that's where all the pull came from because that's where the critical mass of the party increasingly was um, I think we are under resourced in the north um, our organisation in large parts of the north not at all universally but you know there are um, there are some pockets um, even in the northeast, which is the region where we're, we're, we're weakest, um, there are patches of people in you know, Sunderland, for example, where um, compared with Newcastle next door, Tories and Sunderland have carried on campaigning without very much support from outside. They're winning seats, winning vote share. They never let the Lib Dems get a toehold. North Tyneside, we're doing really well. You know, there are pockets where we're we're doing really well, but equally, there are great swathes of the north. Uh, where our organisation is incredibly depleted, and, we, and I, you know, my, I guess my biggest task for 2007 is to uh, do something about that. But I think there's also an issue about. I don't think there's a. I, I, it's not the case that the strategy doesn't work in 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 the north of England. That somehow people in the north are fundamentally different and not interested in the same kind of things. You just look at Manchester. You know, some people say well, all this green stuff doesn't work in the north. In Manchester City Council elections in May, there was a Green Party candidate in every ward, polling very strongly. Actually, in some cases, polling more strongly than we did. The idea that people aren't interested in environmental issues in the north um, is is just absurd. I think people are broadly interested in the same kind of things. But the question, do people think we're predominantly a southern party? Yes, they do. And that's something we have to change. Um, don't have all the answers yet, but we're giving intense thought to that. We do need to have more of a northern accent. E-boy. And it's odd, actually, because actually when you look at yep. the shadow cabinet, of, I suppose, the sort of four top positions, I mean, exclude David and, and, and myself, but then shadow... Chancellor, Shadow Foreign Secretary, Shadow Home Secretary, are all uh, MPs for Northern seats. Matt Davis asks, and we've we've touched upon this with with uh, the need for activists to do more by elections. His question is, why are you consistently allowing the activist base of the party, without whom no election can be won, to be continually ignored, abused, and marginalised? I don't understand this at all. I just don't understand what this is all about. You know, where is this abuse? Where is this marginalisation? I spend half my life around the country meeting with conservative activists. Um, so I just don't understand that. I think it's we just can, nonsense. Perhaps we can we can let Matt give some examples for, yeah. for, for another time. Justin Hinchliffe, who I think's uh, chairman in Tottenham, yep. comments that Labour and the Lib Dems were and still are very good at rewarding people who cross the floor. The first major person to defect to us post ninety two was Labour's Richard Balf, a senior MEP, but he's now out in the cold. Had he joined the Lib Dems, he'd be a peer by now. There are defectors who want to join the Conservatives but do not want to get shafted by CCHQ and end their political careers. Do you agree that the way in which we treated Balfe sent out a bad message to others who were thinking of following suit? Well, I don't quite understand this, this sort of shafted by CCHQ thing. I mean, Richard Balfe, who I know, I've know i known for years, I, when he was 
a, a Labour MEP. I knew him well, and I like him and rate him. Um, but he, as my recollection is, that he applied to be on the list, the MEP list, yeah. I think for London, was it? Um, and, you know, it wasn't CCHQ who stopped him going up the ratings. It was the members of the party in London. who They're the ones who vote on these rankings. Um, so I don't think there's any question about being shafted by CCHQ. Um, I think the slightly, the criticism I tend to get is the reverse. I mean, I've been lucky enough to welcome a number of former PPCs, my own opponent, Raymond Chishti, uh, Labour candidate in Horsham last time, joined the party. Um, he's a brilliant campaigner, as I know, because he campaigned against me, a witness it at first hand. And he's um, now on uh, um, our candidates list and indeed on the priority list. You know, when that happened, um, there was a lot of criticism because the suggestion was he'd been taken too quickly. Um, but with also, I think, we're not now on our fourth Lib Dem PPC just joining us, um, which is fantastic. And I've, I've been involved in welcoming all of them. Um, and, you know, going actually back to one of the early questions is we learn a hell of a lot about how the Lib Dems campaign and how they do by-elections from these guys, debriefing them properly. Uh, if these are people who now feel comfortable in the Conservative Party, we need to make them feel very welcome. I'm desperately concerned to ensure that we do make them feel welcome uh, and, and part of us. Um, and I do dislike this mentality there is in some parts of the party that says, oh, well, we don't. all these people who join us, they're Johnny-come-latelys, they're not proper Conservatives, they've got to go through sort of a lot of time-serving and penitence. We've got to make them regret almost that they were ever anything but a Conservative. Um, we should make them welcome, very welcome, not sort of hugely preferential treatment, but actually make them feel very welcome because there are a ton more out there. And I think I, what I agree with uh, Justin about is that there are a load more potential defectors out there. But, um, and they should know that they will be made very welcome by the party. Um, and they're not sort of fast-tracked to anything. But if they're good, they'll make their way. They, we are not going to make them go through a sort of great treadmill of showing that they're proper Conservatives. So your message would be, come and join us. Yeah, do it now. Bring them on. Jim Smith has, has, has a question about, about your role as party chairman. He wants to know, is the role a full-time job? He comments, the real problem with your running of the party is that you're treating it as a part-time role, and what we really need is a full-time chairman. Do you think this criticism is justified? Well... I'm not sure the party chairman has ever been a full-time job. Um, it's normally been done by a member of parliament, so it can't be a full-time job. I mean, I have a constituency. Uh, I mean, Christmas I, I tend to get elsewhere is, you're treating this party chairmanship as a full-time job. What, what time are you spending being an MP? Uh, for example, tomorrow I'm going to a full day in the constituency, um, and um, a lot of my time inevitably is taken up with my role as an MP, and I do also have some outside interests as well, which I find actually helps me as party chairman because I'm constantly be, um, being involved with other organisations where I'm seeing how other organisations in a fast-changing world are dealing with complex management and technology-type issues. I find that very valuable. Um, I don't think being party chairman should be a totally full-time job, but nor do I think it's a non-executive job. Um, I, we don't have a chief executive, um, I think, with... I think looking back over the times when that we have had a chief executive of the party, it's never been fantastically successful, nor has it been sustained. Uh, what I have done um, is uh, significantly upgraded the senior management of the party. 
Uh, we now have an outstanding finance director. Very lucky to um, entice Ian McIsaac to join us, who was you know, one of the senior global partners of Deloitte's. Took a very slightly earlier retirement, taking on what he thought was a going to be a quiet part-time retirement job. Didn't quite work out like that. I mean, but he's fantastically good. We're incredibly lucky to have him doing a really important job. Uh, we hired Giles Inglis Jones to be head of um, HR and development. I think, with the best will in the world, no one would contend that uh, HR was one of our great strengths before. I think I've heard lots of people say, in fact, some people who were left the party told me you know, when I arrived last year that this was the worst employer they'd ever worked for. Now, I'm not proud of that. I'm not proud of the fact, and we shouldn't be. You know, it is, it, it, if a party is all about relating to people, relating to the public, if we can't organize our relationships with our own employees well and have them thinking we're a decent employer, then we're not doing well. So Giles has brought real discipline um, to our role as an employer of people, and it's you know, there have been some tough things to do, but I mean, he would say that we probably weren't even compliant with the law in some respects uh, when he came in, and we've begun to get that um, sorted out. So, you know, we've got a really good um, senior management team now. George Bridges, as campaign director, basically runs the front end of the organization, the political and campaigning uh, activity, and he's, he's really good. Uh, we're also you know, investing in training, management training for some of our managers. We've never quite done that before. We just assumed you take some bright people, throw some management responsibilities at them, and they'll find out how to do it. Life isn't like that. You need to train people, and we're investing in, in that. So I'm, I'm much happier today that we've got more, not enough yet, but more management depth uh, in, the, in CCHQ than was the case before. We've also taken some big decisions like investing in Merlin, the new software package, um, which is, you know, is the biggest database in the United Kingdom. I mean, it can hold the electoral register. And we're bringing it in pretty much uh, on time. You know, it's, it's well, still not totally there yet, but we're pretty much on time uh, within budget. And, uh, and I think the team who've been running that, Anne Noonan as director of IT, she's done brilliantly, really good partner, company, Conchango, who've been developing it with us. It's worked, worked really well and it will, will transform our campaigning technology. Also, you know, just um, taking some uh, decisions that were overdue. Well, that was overdue, actually. I mean, Blue Chip has been um, clunking along for a long time and it needed replacing quite some time ago. So that was a backlog decision. Also, recruiting and training agents. We way way behind where we needed to be, and uh, uh, I asked the board to commit to us recruiting and training another 75 agents. That's underway, um, and that's you know will get us back towards where we need to be. Groupings of um, constituencies, um, very controversial when it got mooted by the board just after the election last year. Actually, it's going gangbusters now. You know, it's happened just in Wolverhampton where I take a particular interest. Monday of this week had their first meeting of the new single Wolverhampton Conservative Association. Got a new campaign centre open opening there, getting a new chairman. A new chairman started. You know, we, there's a hell of a lot of stuff that's happening that's really exciting. And 
on that subject of grouping of, of associations, do you think that'll actually help with you know the whole issue of getting activists out to go in areas that they don't normally go to? Because I think historically, one constituency has often had quite a rivalry in another, and, and yeah. neither of the two will ever meet. Yeah. Do you think this this will will help the parties? Yes, to, I to do. I do. I do. I do. I mean, I really think it will. Um, I've just been buying up in Leicester, three parliamentary constituencies in Leicester. Um, I think all three of those, you know, I'm not certainly not writing any of them off as as targets, but they're, they're going to be a stretch for us. We didn't even win any of them in 1987 when we had a majority of 100. So they're they're a, 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 they're long shots for us. But building up the party um, in in the short term is very much there about winning target seats wards in the city council elections, which are next May. Now that is absolutely something for Leicester Conservatives as a whole to decide on, you know, to take a really rigorous view, not about Leicester East or Leicester South or Leicester West, it's actually which are the wards we need to focus on that we can win, we're going to really pile in on. And that's going to be done much better if there's a single Leicester association, just like we've created in, um, in Wolverhampton, like exists in Coventry, where they've done brilliantly in taking control of the council by having that focused targeting approach uh, like they're doing. Um, in um, other uh, places as well, Nottingham done the same. Huge number of, of cities where you bring come together, create a single conservative association, one single conservative team for the city, and then you can really focus and, and drive it. I was just the other day I went out with the flying squad in Dudley. Now Dudley have got a bit a grouping, but not a uh, not a, a merged association. What they've got is a flying squad, though, where the councillors get out there every Tuesday and they deliver leaflets uh, or campaign in a particular target ward. I went out with them. And just the spirit of um, uh, of working together, all being in the, same, you know, in, in the same thing together, I didn't have a clue at the end of it whether the people I was out with were from Dudley North or Dudley South or Hales Owen. Uh, or Starbridge. They were all saying this is our task, to build up the Conservative presence on Dudley Council, and that's what we're going to do. So I think it's... I, I'm really excited by the way this is this is developing. People are thinking about their place in the party in a very different kind of way that's entirely positive. The party has been uh, keen, or, or seems to have been keen, to distance itself from big business. Do you think that, that David Cameron's decision not to, not to address the CBI conference was correct, or do we now as a party need to do more to engage with the concerns business have in the UK? Um, I, think, uh, uh, I think both, actually. I, I, think I don't think we're keen to distance ourselves from big business at all. I think we're not keen to be seen as the mouthpiece of big business, which a lot of people do think we are. Um, David's decision not to go to the, the, the CBI was not actually a decision not to go there. He was very keen to go. He was very sorry that he couldn't, but you know he needed to go to Iraq um, and, and visit the troops and get a immediate. And this was the only possible um, window that he could do it. And there were some other things actually which were difficult for him to miss. Um, but but it would have been a hell of a lot more difficult doing other things. So uh, I think we need to be very clear about. Um, business um, and um, I think one of the pressing priorities for the Cameron government when it's elected is going to be um, an, a further program of economic reform that begins to restore Britain's competitive edge because for sure Gordon Brown over the last 10 years has eroded it. You know, no one's going to argue that Britain's economy is a basket case or it's going to hell in a handcart. It isn't. But 
you know, has he eroded Britain's competitive advantage? Yes, for sure. The, the, the party's use of new technology, I think, just even over the last year, has come on uh, leaps and bounds. Uh, the most recent uh, foray into that is the Sort It uh, debt campaign, mm. uh, whose front page has comments such as, see the tosser inside, take the tosser test and look what my tosser did. What are your views? Do you think any of the, the, the criticism that, that was pushed towards it were justified? Well, I mean, <laughs> I... I find it very difficult. I mean, some people have got frightfully huffy about this, and and I'm sorry if it calls defence to anyone. But you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure there are that many people who were caused very grave offence. Net debt is a problem. Um, a lot of people um, have got into horrendous debt, um, and it's better. It's a. It seems to me a profoundly conservative thing for us, rather than response to a big national problem like the growth of personal debt, you know, we're going to pass a law, we're going to regulate, we're going to stop people doing it, is actually to work with people to um, take shared responsibility. I mean, this seems to me social responsibility in action, just like our social action program projects in, uh, in, in constituencies is about showing the Conservative Party working with people to solve problems that communities and people have. This is the same thing. So, you know, controversial, yes. Did it get it talked about? Yes. As a result of this, will some people sort out their current debt problems and some others not get into debt they might have got into? Yes, I think so. And if that happens, then I think it's worth the criticism. The party's actually had some successes using uh, new technology to, to campaign with, such as a web camera, which has been a big hit. Uh, people have been engaging with submitting video clips for, for party political broadcasts. Are there any further plans for the use of uh, technology that, that you can share with us at the moment? Well, Merlin um, is, is much on my mind and, and is going to take us, I think, leapfrog us ahead of uh, the other parties in terms of campaigning. Capability, technological capability. Um, uh, so, I, but I think the other thing is we're going to do over the course of the next year is, is uh, radically revamp the um, web, uh, our basic website, conservatives.com, um, which we haven't really done. It's got the new branding on, but it's been pretty much the same um, in format um, and and for quite some time. I think we got there ahead of other parties, but we now need to take another step. So we're going to be looking very uh, at, a, at a big um, rebuild, rethink of Conservatives.com over the coming year. That'll take place uh, next year? Yep. James it's going to cost us some money, I'm afraid. But that's, what, that's what people pay their subscriptions for? Yep. James Mask actually asked a question which, uh, on subscriptions, which I think has been put to you before. Uh, he says, as membership subscriptions will increase for both adults, up from £15 to £25, CF members from £3 to £5, can associations expect a proportionate increase in CCO support? Well, we did actually did a, uh, ran a rule over this not long ago. Um, at the moment, associations' income taken over all this, something in the sort of 18 to 20 million pounds a year. Uh, of that, I get 900,000 at CCHQ. What CCHQ spends in supporting associations costs um, in the region of a million and a half. Um, so you know, we already um, give, in terms of value, more to associations and associations pay to us. This does not, I, I should just stress to James, 
that this increase in the recommended minimum subscription from 15 to 25, which is still below Lib Dems and Labour, who are both way more than this, um, but it, there's no increase in the money coming to CCHQ from this. It remains exactly the same. Um, the benefit of this is going to be entirely uh, to associations. Now, there may be some benefit to us in that some of the associations who currently don't give us anything, mm. and there are still plenty of them, may be able to give us something, which would be great, because we actually do have a party to run here. Um, and in some parts of the country, we need to ramp up dramatically what we do in the field, particularly, as I say, in the north. Um, but no, there's no, uh, you know, the, the increase in income from membership that comes from this entirely accrues to the benefit of associations, none of it to CCHQ. So I think the job then is to get the associations to spend the money wisely or just spend it. Well, there still are a lot of associations who are sitting on cash mountains um, and not spending it or on properties that they don't use, um, that are inappropriate to their use, uh, and it's not a bright way to run things. Um, and I would just make this point that uh, I know when Michael Ashcroft, when he was treasurer, um, he was feared by the associations or he was coming to raid them to take the money for the central party. I have absolutely no interest in coming and getting you know, associations that are sitting on a quarter of a million pounds, there's plenty of them, they sold a property, sitting on a large sum of money. Uh, if they want to give it to Santa, that's great, I'm not going to turn it away. I'm much more interested, though, in associations spending the money on campaigning and building the organisation in there, particularly in the target seats that matter. You know, that is... We only exist as a party um, to make life better for people, and the main way of doing that is campaigning and winning elections. You know, we're not a bloody savings bank. We are not a supper club. We are not an elegant debating society. We are a political party that exists to win elections so we can make the country better. And we do need to spend money to do it. So there's no point waiting for that rainy day. Yeah, it doesn't come much rainier than it has been for the last few years. A final question uh, about your parliamentary work. You came 20th in the uh, private member's bill ballot. Have you decided what bill you'd like to introduce? Yes, I have. I'm going to reintroduce a bill I introduced through a private uh, a 10-minute rule bill process um, a year or so ago, which was about housing infrastructure. Um, and the theory of it is that it would require um, there to be a proper audit of both current infrastructure in the area uh, and the additional infrastructure that would be needed if there's going to be any large-scale housing development. Uh, it's particularly germane in my part of the world, in West Sussex, where large numbers of additional houses are being imposed on us by the government, at the same time as the infrastructure is actually being degraded. You've got this quite extraordinary situation where there's a consultation going on in West Sussex at the moment, which could end up, easily end up, I mean, this is a real option, that they're looking at, with there being no acute hospital in West Sussex at all, no A&E, no maternity services, in a county with seven or eight hundred thousand population, um, and growing. You know, more housing there all the time. The population's growing there markedly, and that's just daft. So, my bill will—I mean, I don't suppose there's a huge prospect of it getting through at number twenty, uh, but I'm going to reintroduce the same one um, and have a crack at it again. So it'd be good fun. I've never. I'm very excited. I've never come up uh, anywhere in the private member's bill ballot before. Like, like winning the lottery. Yeah. Well, once again, time's got the better of us. Francis Maud, thanks for talking to uh, Tory Radio again today. John, thanks very much. To discuss sponsorship opportunities, email editor at
Tory Radio.com. Do it now.